This episode contains sensitive content that may not be appropriate for listeners of all ages. Listener discretion is advised. From Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Mountainland Physical Therapy's Pelvic Health Podcast. I am your host, Madison Splann. Thank you for listening. Today, I will be interviewing Dr. Wright on her new book titled, It's Time You Knew, The Power of Your Choices to Prevent Women's Cancer. Dr. Wright attended Dalhousie University Faculty of Medicine, followed by her internship at McGill University, St. Mary's Hospital, and her residency and fellowship at Brigham and Women's Hospital. She received board certifications in gynecologic oncology, obstetrics and gynecology, and in and is an associate professor at Boston University School of Medicine. Thank you for being here today. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really excited to uh, learn from you and how you help so many of my patients with your field of physical um, therapy. Yeah, I'm super excited to have our discussion. We're going to be learning more about Dr. Wright's family and her personal experience with women's health journey. Um, We're going to chat about kind of the purpose and the creation of this book. Then we're going to dive into some details within the book that really kind of struck my attention. And I think our listeners will really find um, important as well. So to just jump right in, Dr. Wright, when did you first realize that you wanted to write this book and why? I guess I realized... Um, after some of the experiences my family had with diagnosis of uh, cancer, you know, in medicine, we're trained, obviously, sort of disease-based care, especially in oncology. The people that I see on a daily basis have significant diagnosis and issues related to cancer. And it, it would be so much better if we could intervene because prevention is always easier and better than um, waiting for a diagnosis and trying to cure someone. And I think the experience that I had um, just personally with my sisters and I with ovarian cancer just made me want to make sure that the public was aware of different options people have, the different choices you have all along your lifespan about how you probably have more power over your own personal health than anyone else because it's it's your body and you know yourself well. You probably at some level know when things aren't quite right and then it's the choices you make about how you wanna to react to that that can make such a difference in your overall health outcomes. That's great. Yeah. As we kind of dive into this, our listeners will learn about Debbie. That's Dr. Wright's sister and kind of how she started on this journey because of Debbie and kind of Debbie's Debbie's fight and then how that kind of trickled down to Dr. Wright and her sisters. And, and then, you know, her book is really cool because it tells different individual stories and then also has like a little learning moment after these stories. Um, so it's nice. You really feel intimate and you're in someone's life. And then I like the step back look from like the medical perspective as well like what can we take away from this how can we learn from Sally or um, Debbie or all the different women that you have mentioned throughout the book Um, so in writing this book who are you writing it for who is your target audience so my target audience really is for women at all stages of life um probably women that are a little bit older so they can help pass on some of the knowledge to our daughters, because sometimes, you know, when we're young and really healthy, it's really hard to think of things that may happen down the road, sort of as we age and 
do accumulate more diseases or hopefully we stay healthy, but you, you really see the impact as you age uh, of what your daily habits do to, to your health. Um, so generally, you know, women that are interested in health and really enjoying life and trying to stay out of the doctor's office, <laughs> you know, I was fortunate. I grew up, I have, um, I had three sisters. I have two sisters now. My poor dad had four daughters and no, no sons. <laughs> so <laughs> they always, my parents always kept us really busy doing physical activity outside. My mom's famous quote is like, get outside and play. Like, I wish that could be your prescription. Just get outside and play. You know, we grew up uh, before there was all the technology and I, cell phones, iPhones, video games, things that have you sitting in the house. And we really had not a lot of uh, television time either. And I think that impact of that makes me realize how lucky I am to have had those habits laid down when I was a kid and, you know, see my parents being physically active too. Now, on Prince Edward Island, there's no downhill skiing, but there's <laughs> country skiing, <laughs> unlike you, you folks uh, oh, where yeah. you are. <laughs> and so it just became, you know, physical activity just became fun. And it was sort of a part of what our family did together to enjoy uh, our time together. So even though you can do all of the things right, um, sometimes things happen beyond our control. And that's really what was so frustrating for me as a women's cancer surgeon to have a sister die from ovarian cancer because ovarian cancer, that's um, the deadliest of all the GYN cancers. It causes the most deaths and there really is no screening test for it. So people think and have often a false belief that um, an ultrasound and CA-125 are effective ways to screen for ovarian cancer, but there's not a proven screening test that decreases the mortality rate um, from ovarian cancer. You'll hear of those tests being used um, for diagnosis and in people who are exceedingly high risk because of a, a gene mutation. But even in those high risk uh, situations, we see women who develop advanced ovarian cancer in a six month interval of having an ultrasound and C125 every six months. So it's, um, it was frustrating. And I think when, you know, my sister was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, uh, she really didn't have a lot of symptoms. She had a little bit of pressure. She had to go to the bathroom more often, but not anything that was dramatic. And that's the story of so many women. It takes 18 months from the onset of symptoms until a diagnosis of ovarian cancer is established. And, you know, it's hard because sometimes, you know, for a, for a cancer that doesn't have a screening test, the diagnosis is made based on symptoms. And so if you don't really recognize the symptoms yourself, there's a delay. And then most of these cancers occur at age in the 60s when women reach, you know, are postmenopausal. Um, sometimes about 10 to 20 years younger if there's a gene mutation. But women aren't really thinking about gynecologic reproductive organs at that point, because after menopause, like 
often people tell me, oh, the last time I saw a gynecologist, gynecologist was when I had my last child, right? So the shift in care often uh, doesn't focus anymore on reproductive organs and people just don't think about it, including doctors. So a lot of time people have already had like an endoscopy, a colonoscopy, and eventually they get diagnosed usually by a CT scan uh, that's done for persistent unexplained symptoms. Great. You know, I want to like take an aside with this because, you know, even having my women's clinical specialist, you know, we have to do so much studying in order to get that certification and pass exams that even I felt like, okay, I, I know a fair amount about the reproductive system and everything. And reading your book really brought to light all the stuff I don't know and really to help in that screening process because you're totally right. So many women don't see doctors if they don't have to. And I'm in a state where physical therapy is a direct access. And so we're seeing women that maybe haven't had a pelvic exam in years or haven't, you know, talked about these symptoms and they just kind of brush them under the rug. And so I really think this book is important for any pelvic therapist to read to really assist in the screening process and to be an advocate for your patients, you know, encouraging them to make sure they're still having their regular pap smears, asking those questions about the HPV vaccine, um, uh, more details that we're going to dive into later. But, you know, for any of those pelvic PT out here listening, you should definitely get this book. Um, it will help you to screen, especially if you're in maybe a more rural area where access to healthcare is, is lower and you're going to be seeing more of these females. And we see them so much more often, right? We see them maybe twice a week for two months. And so we can really see symptom changes and be that person that catches something like ovarian cancer and symptoms that if they don't seem normal, it's probably not normal. And that's, you should be referring way sooner than later with these individuals for sure. Cause yet like the ovarian cancer being the silent killer really, you know, brought to attention, even, even friends of mine that have, you know, being in our field, right. People always ask kind of questions at different events, not trying to take up your whole time, but like, Oh, you know, I've been having this. And, you know, I even had a, a, a really good friend recently that I said, you know, you really need to go see your OB. I think something else is going on. And she's that person that's had an endoscopy. She's had a colonoscopy and all of that was clear. And it was literally during me reading this book, preparing for this podcast that I have reached out to her and said, you know, you really need to go see a, see an OB guy <laughs> again. And cause no, she, that's, yeah, and she was the uh, yeah, same as you. That. It's so true. And in many uh, people's mind, it's, it is referred to as a silent killer. Um, that term was retired by professional organizations and women's advocacy groups because the thought was, well, there are symptoms. They're just not recognized or they're dismissed, right? They're just abdominal pain or you know indigestion so there's a mnemonic that's helpful for women uh, and it's it's beat beat standing for bloating the e for eating disorder so feeling full as soon as you've had a few bites to eat and the a is for abdominal pain and then the t is for tinkling referring to the sensation of having to go to the bathroom more often to to urinate um, so it's controversial. Can you diagnose ovarian cancer early by symptoms or not? I mean, often it's an incidental finding and we just get lucky. So we need better tests. And, as, you know, ideally they've searched for a screening test and they've used ultrasound and CA125 in different combinations and the logarithms, but still there's, there's not an approved uh, screening test. 
Yeah. It's similar to like endometriosis, right? I'm like, can someone be a genius to figure out an imaging that's going to tell us if we have endometriosis? Like how far do we have to go to keep doing laparoscopies to finally like stage and remove and tell people what's going on after the fact? I wish, yes, we need way better screening technologies. And I'm sure, you know, technology keeps advancing. I'm hopeful that there will be one soon, but yeah, I, I tell a lot of patients that like have a kid, turn them into a genius and figure out an imaging for endometriosis. That would be fabulous. <laughs> yeah. It's so true. We need better uh, research and advocacy so we do get better answers. Even fibroid disease that's so common has such you know poor treatments other than surgical interventions. Well, and it's amazing how long this has been going on for, right? I mean, you know, the we have the healthcare disparities article that was written, what, 20 years ago now about women and, and different races and how we weren't involved in research and how far behind we are because of that lapse in our history with research. And it's, it's definitely unfortunate for sure. Um, so just to get back to your question though, you know, so my sister was really sad because um, she got diagnosed with stage one, the earliest stage, and it was papillary serous, the most common type. Um, but despite surgery and chemotherapy, unfortunately, you know, she developed drug resistance to chemotherapy and eventually passed from ovarian cancer. But uh, what I know, and I want your patients to know is that a lot of ovarian cancer actually starts in the fallopian tube especially for the papillary serous cell type. And so we historically knew from retrospective studies that tubal ligations protect you to a certain extent from developing ovarian cancer, as does the use of oral contraceptive pills. But now that we, uh, based on research from women with gene mutations, it was discovered that most ovarian cancers are actually starting in the fimbriated end of the fallopian tube. And the, the cells, sorry, the cells spill from the tube onto the ovary and grow and implant there. And so the primary lesion in the tube that may be microscopic and, you know, almost impossible for me as a surgeon to see. But what I do see is the tumor growth that then occurs on the ovary. And so what we used to call ovarian cancer is often something that started in the fallopian tube. And that's been recognized now for about 10 years. And it does have significant clinical implications. We no longer tie people's tubes, we cut them, we take them out completely. And then if that's for um, obviously for family planning, but if you're having gynecologic surgery and you've finished having your children, like uh, say you need a fibroid or myomectomy or endometriosis surgery, and you're finished having your children, you should have your tubes surgically removed. And it's referred to as opportunistic self-injectomy is the medical term. And it's thought that model it with modeling studies that we'll start to see a, a decrease in the rate of ovarian cancer in the next five to 10 years as the women who have had opportunistic self-injectomy start to reach the peak of ovarian cancer incidence, which is in the, in the 60s. Now, um, how would like an individual bring that up to their doctors? Say they know that they are done having kids. Um, and, and is this covered by insurance? So if you're having it for family planning reasons, yes, it's covered by insurance. Um, if you weren't having gynecologic surgery for another reason, then obviously you wouldn't if you didn't, you could, you could have it done just for, for family planning. You just have to take into account individual risk factors because it is a surgical procedure that requires anesthesia. I think the most common contraception right now in the U.S. is um, like IUDs and OCPs a close second. And they are popular because they avoid 
uh, general anesthesia and the risks of surgery. But um, it can certainly impact your cancer risk. And it's important to consider that when you're choosing your options. It's just important to have that piece of information. I would think all gynecologists doing surgery now would offer opportunistic salpingectomies to their patients if they are taking them to surgery for another gynecologic indication and they know their patient or client um, has completed childbearing. Great. That's good to know. I will have to definitely let a lot of my patients know that because yeah, being able to take charge of our health and prevent as best that we can, you know, why, why wouldn't we, you know, I'm sure right. the biggest thing for a lot of women, unfortunately, is cost. You know, I think in the childbearing years, we, we are givers, right? We give our time to our kids and, and our professions. And, you know, I think sometimes we do let our health kind of take the back burner because we're doing things for everybody else. And, you know, taking that break and taking the time for ourselves is super important. And I think, you know, your author's note saying that, you know, that you hope this book inspires women to speak up and seek their medical care is really the whole reason I started doing this podcast was to try and get out to the population and just, you know, get that information out there so people don't feel like they have to keep going to doctors and, and understanding different signs and symptoms and knowing when you need to go to the doctor and listening to a podcast isn't going to solve your problems anymore. Um, and so, you know, I really shared, share that, um, you know, that note in, in trying to get information out to the general population so that we can make the best choices for ourselves and for our family, because, you know, we want to be around for them and we have all of the, all the devices at our exposure and we just need to learn how to use them. No, agree, hundred percent. And then the other final comment before we we move on is, ten per, about ten to fifteen percent of all ovarian cancer patients have a genetic predisposition, and so anyone that's diagnosed with ovarian cancer should have genetic testing, because it it can. Uh, it can make a difference in what drugs are used for treatment. And then obviously it can impact family members. And so cascade testing, if you test gene positive for, we refer to it as a deleterious mutation, then your immediate family members potentially should be uh, tested as well for that same gene mutation. And it's important because if you know you're at higher risk, it's all about understanding our own personal risk. If we know we're at higher risk, then we can be put into it uh, a program at a, a comprehensive uh, cancer center to try and decrease that risk, whether it's through risk-reducing surgery or using an oral contraceptive pill. Um, there are many different things we can do to help decrease our cancer risk. Oh, that's great. And I think I had mentioned this before. So um, in this book, it has different women's stories. Um, and I was curious with the exception of course of your sister, cause I'm sure that story is a, your favorite. Um, which one do you think is your favorite or most important and why? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. There are uh, so many all... good ones in there, uh, that, that do bring up different conversations with gene mutations or HPV and, and you span the life, you know, you, you talk about women in all different age ranges and, you know, different aspects of their life. I'm just so curious if you do have like a patient that really, or a story that really sticks out to you because of maybe what it conveys and, 
how it is so important. Like if you only had five minutes and you wanted to pick one story for a patient to read, which one would it be and why? Okay, um, it's another ovarian cancer one, but it's okay. one that I think inspired inspired me. It's chapter twenty two, and it's called "Holding On to Love," and it's about uh, Susan is the not the patient's real name, but my patient, and she had bloating, some abdominal pain, and got referred for a pelvic mass that was quite large. Um, but the thing about Susan is she, all her life, she was physically active and she loved tennis. Tennis was her thing. And uh, um, she had some physical issues. She had some hip pain. She ended up with a hip replacement a few years prior, par partly perhaps related to being such an active, um, competitive uh, tennis player. And she was nationally ranked. She really wanted to have um, minimally invasive surgery, meaning surgery through tiny keyhole incisions rather than a large incision. And we do that, but when we do minimally invasive surgery, ideally when we remove anything that's large, we need to remove it within a contained system, meaning we take an ovarian mass and we don't want to spill it or rupture it because that can actually upstage your disease and can be the difference between if it's early stage observation in some cases versus uh, chemotherapy, which is obviously a, a ordeal for patients to get through. But she was just so positive and wanted to have the surgery done minimally invasive and we were able to do it. We were able to remove it without any rupture or spill. Um, she did need chemotherapy based on the staging results, um, but she sailed through it. Like she was up walking, she was a star. And she um, came for a post-op visit about probably three years ago now. And she had started playing professional tennis again. And she uh, was enrolled in a national competition that got delayed because of COVID. But I was just so happy to see her enjoying her life like her life wasn't destroyed by this cancer diagnosis. And she had just such joy uh, in the way that as she was able to get through this diagnosis and continue on, uh, I was really impressed, really That's impressed. Great. My favorite one, well, one of my favorite ones was um, Sally's story, which I think it, what really stands out to me about it for other practitioners in the screening process, right? So Sally, obviously, you know, had the random bleeding and the pain. Um, and, you know, I think her primary care switched her hormone, you know, cause like, oh, it must be the wrong birth control for you. Um, and then, you know, in your, um, what can we learn from Sally aspect? You kind of talk about how random bleeding and pain is never normal. And if you switch your birth control, um, and it's hormone related, that bleeding should stop within one week. Like that was a huge one for me to know. Cause I do think a lot of women assume or want to assume, cause we never want to think it's cancer, of course, um, that, oh, it must just be the wrong birth control. It doesn't work for me anymore. Um, and so that one really stood out for me and knowing like, okay, practitioners out there, if, you know, if they are stating this to you or, you know, the pain and bleeding after intercourse, like these are symptoms that are commonly discussed in this pelvic health realm because we're talking about pelvic pain and intimacy. And so if these are symptoms that we're hearing, 
random bleeding is never normal. And so that one just super stood out to me for really in my profession and being able to help screen and know when, you know, things might be random you should still seek more medical attention. That's when you should be referring out. Right, no, it's it's really important to main a, maintain a high index of suspicion. So if you took all of our menstrual periods and put them in a row, it would be seven years of bleeding. And so if we're bleeding that much in our entire lives, we start to just think of it as you know a normal everyday thing. And so it's easy for people to ignore it. It's even hard sometimes for women to recognize bleeding as abnormal around the time of menopause. And part of that is the problem with the definition because menopause is defined by the absence of menstrual bleeding for one year. That's the medical definition. But if you go for four months and then get a period, then you have to start counting over again. So it's in retrospect. So like, when do you really know? It makes it confusing. It's not easy to figure out when you're in menopause sometimes because there's the transition or perimenopause, which can be four years where you're skipping and the ovary is just random ovulation. And so you get these abnormal bleeding patterns and it's hard sometimes to know. So let your doctor figure it out, <laughs> you know, show up and say, you know, I'm bleeding all the time. And it's not like a period. It's not like a normal menstrual period. You don't need to know all the medical terminology, but you do need to know that it's not normal to have unpredictable, unpredictable bleeding that's random or bleeding after sex as well. That's, that's another one to be concerned of. So any bleeding after one year with no menses, you need to go, even if it's spotting. It's harder in our menstrual years because of the overlap with what is menstrual bleeding or birth control, breakthrough bleeding. It is harder, but we need to just have a high index of suspicion. I like that. I like that phrase, high index of suspicion. That's great. You know, another story that really stuck out to me too on a different standpoint was Christy's story. Um, that was more about HPV. And the part that stuck out to me was Australia and how long that they've been doing the vaccines for and how they they think they're going to reach herd immunity soon. Um, do you have any idea where the U.S. stands in that standpoint? Oh. I'm sure it's like, yeah, we're not, we're not there. It's really disappointing. Canada is further ahead. I'm dual citizen. Canada is further ahead than us, <laughs> but um, I think it's access. I think it's the low rate of vaccination. Um, there's a lot of people who have the false concept or mindset that they don't need to be vaccinated because they're not at risk. But I see those same patients sitting in my office crying when they've got an abnormal pap test or dysplasia, which is a precursor to cervical cancer, and they don't think they're at risk. Sometimes it's really hard to define risk. Like we don't know who carries high-risk HPV. It's not about sexual promiscuity. It's not about... Um, the number of partners, like that's a really common question your doctor might ask you is how many sexual partners you have because we were trained to do that. But in all honesty, you only need one partner who had multiple partners or one partner who maybe only had one or two partners, but they managed to contract high risk HPV and didn't clear it. 
what's really important about HPV is that 80% of us get exposed to HPV at some point in our life. Um, it's usually a transient infection that resolves. But if it doesn't and it's persistent, that's what puts us at high risk for developing HPV-related cancers. And I say cancers, not just cervix cancer, because there are five HPV-related cancers. And the most common one right now is in men and it's back of the throat or oropharyngeal cancers, which is why you now see the, the uh, television commercials of a, this man jogging and he's getting his HPV vaccine. I don't know if you've seen those public service announcements. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, in the beginning in the United States, it was all about women and cervix cancer. And the women or moms weren't getting their sons vaccinated because they said, oh, my son's not going to get cervix cancer. Why would I do an HPV vaccine? But, you know, a virus, like, unfortunately, we've learned firsthand from COVID, um, you can't see a virus. You can't tell someone has it. Um, you can prevent it with vaccination. And then that breaks the transmission. Herd immunity is really important because it stops the spread because there are some people that can't receive the vaccine, for example, um, people that are immunocompromised or have other issues where they cannot get a vaccination. But obviously, knowing your sexual partner's risk is really important. Having that conversation, well, have you gotten your HPV vaccine? <laughs> have you ever had HPV? I mean, those are difficult conversations, but, you know, they can they're important. You should be having intimate relations with someone that you could have a conversation like that and not have issues with it. Well, I thought the other note was like, even if now you've been married, it still doesn't mean that your husband shouldn't go get the HPV vaccine if he's never had it before to just help with that prevention of the cervical cancer. That was something that really stuck out to me as well. Like, oh, so even if my husband never got it as a teenager, he should still get it now, even if I've been fully vaccinated and we're, you know, in a monogamous relationship, it's still a safe thing to help with the prevention. Right. It, the FDA in 2020 increased the age. So it used to be only up to age 26 and now it's up to age 45. But the recommendation is to obviously discuss it with your doctor. Um, you know, some of the research suggests that it's your first partner and exposures that have the biggest implication to developing um, cancer as opposed to your current partner per se. So we can't, you know, HPV, it's so tricky. Women always say, well, how did I get this? Or does my husband have it? And it's more your own immune response and how your body reacts to the exposure then um, that, that's important in whether it's a persistent infection or not. Because remember, if you look around a room of 100 people, 80 people will have had HPV at some point. They wouldn't know they had it unless they were perhaps a woman who had a pap smear done or an HPV test, because we don't screen for that, obviously, in men. There's no screening test yet. I'm sure there will be down the road. And so there is a difference when you just get a basic PAP that does not include an HPV test, you have to specifically ask for it or your doctor will recommend it, correct? Correct. And this is difficult because the screening guidelines for cervix cancer change so often and they're based on age. Um, 
They're also in part based historically on risk. But the American Cancer Society just came out with guidelines this past summer in July of 2020 for primary screening with HPV alone, not a pap smear in women 25 years and older. Prior to that, it was always a combination. Because HPV is so common, there was really no point in the previous protocols to test for HPV under age 30, because so many women would test positive. But by the time you get into your 30s, mid 30s and 40s, you really shouldn't be testing positive for HPV. That usually implies you have a persistent high risk HPV. And so we didn't want to over-treat young women who had a transient infection that would resolve on its own. And so often we would follow those women rather than do interventions to treat precancer or dysplasia. So I think moving to primary HPV screening, and we're not screening for all the strains of the HPV virus, just the ones that are most commonly associated with cancer. So in women, 16 and 18 are definitely most common and probably account for more than 75%, but there are other high-risk strains as well. Um, what's interesting um, is the importance of being vaccinated, but also being vaccinated in the pediatric age group. There was a study from Sweden that showed that people immunized before age 17 compared to older uh, women had much lower rates of cervical cancer than the young girls who got it around age 11, 10, 11, you know, the onset of when it's vaccine is recommended. Well, that's really, and I liked how, I think it must've been Australia that was doing it like in schools. Right. They do that in Canada too. My, my uh, family in Canada, when I say the rates are low, they say, well, why didn't they just get it in school? Didn't the school nurse get the HP vaccine? And I'm like, no, you have to go to the doctor's office in the United States and you have to have your parents' permission. Your parents have to, you know, sometimes it's not covered by insurance. So you can see how our rates are lagging for HPV vaccination relative to some other healthcare systems that deliver care in a different way. Well, the other thing that shocked me, which it wasn't a new stat, but it's more just still eye-opening either way, is just the stats on maternal health care mortality in the United States and why it's so much higher. Like, any ideas why it's so much higher here compared to even like third world countries? What in the world? I like I, I know I've read this before, but you know, it just again hit home. Like, I can't wait to ask Dr. Wright her opinion on why she thinks it is so much higher than other countries because it's sad. You no, know, I think it's it's sad. I think it's uh, some of the biases in our medical system and the quality of care we receive. Um, you know, some of the hospitals don't have the same outcome measures as other hospitals. Um, it, it's tough. It's tough to, to answer that question because it, it exposes the bias and the fact that people don't have access to care or they show up and they're treated poorly sometimes. So again, another reason that I really felt I wanted to write the book is that if you're aware of that, then go to a different hospital. If you've, if you've gone to an emergency room and they don't want to take care of you for whatever reason, and un unfortunately it's sad because sometimes it is dictated by insurance status, right? Um, but you need to be able to advocate for yourself. And there are a lot of um, 
you know, resources in the community that you can access sometimes for advocacy when you're not getting the care or treatment that you, that you think you need. And I really found that like, find your right doctor. You had mentioned that multiple times throughout the book. And it is so true. I mean, a lot of women here, I've heard, you know, as you have, I'm sure some pretty interesting horror stories about women with pelvic pain and getting a pelvic exam and then having PTSD associated with it and needing mental health practitioners. And now they're, they can't have sex with their partner and, you know, and, and then they'll come into my office fearful and haven't had a pelvic exam since, um, you know, and, and I, advocate for them to find the right doctor. I try and feel them out, see their personality. And, you know, in my field, I do know a lot of the doctors around the area so I can, and who takes what insurance. So I can definitely help facilitate where I feel certain women will fit best with a, with a doctor. And I think a lot of pelvic PTs probably do that too. And, you know, advocating, like if you didn't like how you were treated, there are many more out there. You will probably have to wait a little bit longer to get into the one that you probably want to. Um, but you know, it's your health. And if you feel like it's not being handled properly, then make a change. Right. And your point about, about post-traumatic stress, I do see that a lot. And there are some women that you just cannot or should not do a pelvic exam in the office. And, you know, they may let you try, but as you probably know from doing pelvic floor work, there's some people that automatically are so uptight and anxious that it would be trauma to do it. And I don't, I just stop and we have a conversation. And if it's really important that they have that exam, it can be done in the operating room under with sedation. You can go oh. to the dentist and get sedation. Right, right. <laughs> For some things in gynecology, I think you need sedation. Now, I had a question because in pelvic PT, we'll commonly use like um, a topical lidocaine to help with some of the burning pain. Are, are, can women use a topical lidocaine before a pelvic exam or would that just skew the smear and the scrape and things? Um, so it depends the reason the pelvic exam is being done. Now, if, we, if people are having primary HPV screening, they don't actually need a pelvic exam. They could have it taken from a urine sample because it can test off the urine and still be very accurate. Um, so if people are traumatized, that's an option because it's a PCR test looking for the, um, the fingerprint of the HPV virus. It's not a, a culture or a swab. As many other STDs can be also taken from urine now as well. So that's one important thing to know. But in general, if you're uncomfortable or you're worried about your pelvic exam, the most important thing to do is to tell your doctor that before you get all undressed and you're in that vulnerable position. You got you to say, you know, I've, I've had a lot of anxiety about coming today because I'm concerned about my discomfort with the pelvic exam. And there's things the doctor can do to make you more comfortable for that, but speak up and say so rather than just sort of suffer in silence because then you're going to be anxious. And as soon as you're anxious, we kind of squeeze our butt a little bit, which includes the vagina, right? Yep. And then there's no way the doctor is going to get a good pelvic exam because you have to be relaxed. Yes. Yep. I mean, I have that conversation with women all the time, like maybe call ahead, you know, have that conversation. If you're that concerned, you don't want to make the appointment, you know? Um, but yeah, yes, at least go in and talk right? At least go ahead and talk and make a plan. It doesn't mean you have to have a pelvic exam that day. They should always be asking. And uh, American College of OBGYN also came out with new guidelines that there should always be a chaperone in the room when you're having a pelvic exam um, 
to protect the patient, but also the physician as well. And just it makes people more comfortable that there's a, you know, a, a third person there. And if you, if you, if me as the doctor performing the exam needs something or find something unexpected, then, you know, it's not an awkward thing where I have to remove a speculum, get up, get stuff, and then start all over again. The person is there to help both of us um, deliver the best care. Yes. And I have definitely noticed that there's always, there's always two. So that's great. Well, before we kind of jump into kind of our ending, are there any other major topics that you wanted to get out of this podcast to the general population? There's, I do want to say physical, like you're a physical therapist. I want to say physical activity is just so important. We know that sitting for more than six hours a day increases our cancer risk independent of BMI. Like a lot of times we always correlate the two, but for some reason there is clearly a difference. There's one study that I just want to quote. It was published from Alberta, Canada, and it looked at physical activity levels in a cohort of close to 500 women and correlated their physical activity pre and post diagnosis of uterine cancer. And women who had high levels of physical activity had improved disease-free survival and post-op for increased activity, which is huge for implications for survivorship programs. If you're physically active after a cancer diagnosis, it, it in this study, uterine cancer improved not only your disease-free survival, but your overall survival. And so, I mean, you can't you can't pers- doctors prescribe physical activity, but if it was a pill, that would be all over, all over the news, right? But there's like not the same <laughs> business model behind physical activity. And it's hard because people being treated for cancer often become deconditioned because they have pain or they're going through treatments. But to just get outside and go for a walk, it can make a huge difference. It has such a big impact on our health in many ways that's hard to measure, depression, anxiety, muscle strength. Even, you know, as a surgeon, I see the difference in people who are physically active versus those who are inactive, even in the ability to be discharged home after surgery, because you have to be able to get up out of bed by yourself, or, you know, it's really not safe to let you go home to, you know, the squats (laughs) or the planks, (laughs) like those things that we do or don't do every day can have a huge difference on our health outcomes. And it's hard You know, I try in my practice, especially with uterine cancer, because a lot of uterine cancer correlates very strongly with obesity and inactivity. I really try to promote people to be physically active. Um, And it's such a simple thing to do. And we're disease based. And so it's not something that we as doctors are used to doing. We don't record physical activity as a vital sign, but I think that we should perhaps. I mean, it's proven in so many different studies, but how do we implement that and make it so that people really understand that and pursue better health with that knowledge? That's, I think, the the biggest challenge. Oh, that makes complete sense. I appreciate you taking that time to to say that because you're right. You know, in here we see people for a few months and then every once in a while we get what's called the frequent flyers where they'll come back for persistent some pain. And, you know, the first question, are you still doing your home exercises? (laughs) No, no, I kind of thought, you know, like, okay, well, 
they're prescribed for a reason to keep your symptoms at bay and for you to take control of your pain. Um, and a lot of times I'll quote the AMA, you know, you need to have five out of seven days with 30 minutes of moderate activity to have heart healthy life and overall healthy life. And it doesn't change if you're pregnant. Um, oh, I love, I love that you quote that. I quote that too. And the stats on that are like, are depressing because only 17% of adult Americans meet those guidelines. Oh, I believe it. I only believe 17%. it. And, you know, there's research to show that 48% of cancers could actually be prevented because they have lifestyle interventions that could modify the course of disease. So the number one cause of death in the United States is cardiovascular disease, and number two is cancer. And a lot of the underlying chronic conditions, we don't code those as deaths. We code, you know, the end-end thing, but, you know, physical inactivity, poor nutrition, um, obesity, uh, alcohol, like those things. If we could have people be more aware it's not to scare them with those stats, but if people took better care of their health, you know, it's our greatest asset. I think people would enjoy life more. That's so true. That is so true. Well, Dr. Wright, if nothing else, what do you hope listeners take away from your book? I hope they realize how much power they have as a woman in their own body to be able to speak up and, um, achieve better health. <laughs> like it's really up to them, the choices they make and, and their daily habits, but they need to really have the facts, the scientific facts, like I'm not making them up, they're scientific facts. <laughs> and I think they need to put them to good use to make their health as best as it can. It's really, like I said, our greatest asset is our health. So true. And now where can our listeners purchase your book? So my book is available on Amazon. Um, there's a link to it. I have a website called BelinaWrightMD.com, and it's got links that you could buy or purchase the book there as well. Perfect. Well, thank you for listening. If you would like to speak with a specialist, please email podcast at mlrehab.com. I would like to thank Dr. Wright for coming on the show today. And also remember to subscribe to this podcast to get the most up-to-date episode information and downloads. Thank you. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Exercises that are safe and appropriate for some people may not be for you. No treatment program should be undertaken without first consulting your physical therapist or physician. The contents of this podcast is protected under United States copyright laws and may not be reproduced, redistributed, transmitted, displayed, published, or broadcast without prior written permission of Mountain Land Physical Therapy.